Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. There's nothing more thrilling than a person who's been in captivity or in prison for many, many years tasting that thrill of freedom. There's nothing more thrilling than a person who's been separated from his family and friends for many years being reunited with them for the first time after many years. There's a man by the name of Andres Toma. He was the longest uh, uh, World War II, really, uh, prisoner of war, and he was 19 when he was captured by the Soviet Union in the fall of 1944. He was placed in a POW camp just east of Leningrad, and when the war uh, finally ended, the camp closed down in 1947. He was then sent to a mental hospital because here's the problem. Whenever he spoke, it was only gibberish to those that were listening. And so for basically 50 years, he spent a prisoner of war, falsely accused of being a man who had some mental illness. And it wasn't until many years later that people realized that he actually wasn't speaking gibberish. He was speaking Hungarian. And finally, when people realized that this man was completely sane, At the age of 75, he was released as a prisoner of war and reunited with his family. You can imagine being a prisoner of war for 50 years. And imagine the sense of freedom, the thrill of freedom that he experienced the first time that he was released from that that mental hospital and reunited with his family. This morning, we're going to talk about this freedom that we have in Christ over the power of the law. As we dive back into Romans this morning, we continue our study on this subject of sanctification. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is really the third section of Romans, and it focuses on this subject of sanctification. I know we mentioned this past several weeks, but it's always a good reminder for us. There are three different stages of sanctification. You have positional sanctification. That occurs at the moment that a person receives Christ as their Savior, and they become genuine followers of Christ. When we are born because of our sin, we are born with, uh, at war with God. And so because of our sin, we are all uh, headed towards hell. We are all separated from the relationship with God. But the moment that we receive Christ as our Savior, the righteousness of Christ is imputed upon us, and therefore we are declared and made righteous in the eyes of God, and we are positionally sanctified. It is saving or separating the believers from the penalty of sin. Once a person receives Christ, they go through the second stage of sanctification, which is progressive sanctification. This is the process of becoming more like Christ. It is saving or separating the believer from the power of sin. It goes from the moment we receive Christ until the moment we, we leave this earth, either through the rapture or physical death. And once we step into heaven, after we leave this earth, we move into ultimate or complete sanctification. That is the full and complete working of God in our hearts. Our soul receives the glorification first, and then we are reunited with our body after the return of Christ, and that receives the ultimate glorification. This is, this is really separating the believer from the presence of sin. And so as we continue on, once a person is positionally sanctified, they move in this process of becoming more like Christ, progressive sanctification. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is speaking to that subject. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is really answering the question, how do we as Christians live after we receive Christ? As we discussed last week, the Father called us to be holy, but we forfeited that through our sins. So the Son, Jesus Christ, enabled us to become holy through his death and resurrection. So those that receive him have the righteousness of Christ imputed upon them. And then the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us after salvation, empowering us to become more like Christ. 
And so if you have your Bibles, if you could take it with me in Romans chapter 7 this morning. We have discovered through Paul's writings within this gospel really this emphasis upon grace. And as a result of this subject of grace, which is really new amongst the listeners here, there were two assumptions that resulted from that. You had antimonianism, which we talked about the past couple of weeks, as the Jews accusing Paul of preaching grace and therefore uh, really a disregard for the law. You could do whatever you want because of God's grace. And then you had the believers who really swung the pendulum all the way over here and basically said, hey, if God gives more grace to those that have the bigger offenses, then we might as well live our life however we want want to live so that we can receive more of God's grace. And both of those are false assumptions. And so Paul speaks of uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8 really regarding this subject of grace and our role or its role within our sanctification process. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans chapter 6 specifically focuses on the power that we have through Christ to overcome the power of sin. But chapter 6, while this verse specifically, verse 14, explains a believer's relationship to sin through the power of God's grace, it does not fully explain the believer's relationship to the law. There are several questions that can be posed of this. To what extent are we to obey the law as Christians? Are we still subject to the penalty of breaking God's law? And what kind of effect does the law have on believers today? Romans chapter 7 is Paul's clarification regarding a believer's relationship to the law. We're going to be focusing on the first six verses here of Romans chapter 7. And so if you could follow along with me as we read those together. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she shall no longer be called an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth unto God." Fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth the fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul spends the entire chapter of Romans chapter 7 really discussing the Christian's relationship to the law. And this subject is so important for us because the more we realize the freedom that we have over the law, the more we become grateful for the sacrifice that Christ has done for us and the freedom that we have because of Christ. This past week, I was texting with somebody within our church, and they were discussing about how they uh, were sharing the gospel with one of their coworkers. And the coworker mentioned, listen, I really want to believe, I really do, but I'm having such a hard time accepting the fact that Christianity is so rigid, and it's, and it's so full of all these rules that we have to follow, and there's really only one way to Christ. Over the course of the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dissect Romans chapter 7 for the purpose of understanding how a Christian relates to God's law. And in the process of that, we are going to discover that Christianity is not a set of, of, of uh, really rigid rules. It's all about a relationship. 
And understanding the power that we have and the freedom that we have over the law, my prayer is that through this study of Romans chapter 7, we will increase in our spiritual growth as we fall more in love with our Savior, the only one that could save us really from the condemnation of the law. So the title of, of really part one of this Christian relationship to the law is this, the law no longer condemns the believers. The law no longer condemns the believers. The overall point that Paul is making within these first six verses is this change in a believer's relationship to the law. Because a believer is dead to the law, the jurisdiction of the law has no power over the believer. But before we go any further, we have to make sure that everyone that's listening understands what the law actually is. I mean, what do we mean by the law? Is the law the Ten Commandments? Is the law a set of food restrictions we have to follow? Is the law going to church? What is the law? And there's certainly necessary questions that we must all ask ourselves before we fully understand the implications of this. And so with that being said, to to really understand this, we have to understand the word covenant and how it pertains to the Bible. A biblical definition of the word covenant is really a binding agreement between one or two parties in which God is the guarantor and enforcer of the agreement. In the Old Testament, God has a special covenant between himself and the people, which is the nation of Israel. And we first see this covenant really in Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. We won't take the time to explain that, but that's basically the promises that God gives to Abraham to bless his his line, to give land to the nation of Israel, so on and so forth. That's Genesis chapter 12. You can look at that Abrahamic covenant. But as we progress through that, what we see here in the first five books of the Bible, which is really referred to as the Torah, and that's the law that was given to uh, to the nation of Israel as part of this covenant community. The entire law is often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant because it was centered on God's giving of the divine law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so what you have here is you have the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which is between God and the nation of Israel. And then you have the Mosaic covenant, which is a set of laws that really go along with this covenant. And so with that being said, when God's law was broken, it broke the fellowship between God or the covenant between God and his people, therefore breaking that relationship. And so that's why you have the sacrificial system that was introduced in the Old Testament. Or it talks about you sacrifice animals uh, for this type of sin and it's really restoring this broken relationship. But it was certainly not efficient to completely and ultimately take care of man's problem of sin. Which is why the entire Old Testament is pointing towards a ultimate answer, a solution. And that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, it points to this new covenant. This is what it has to say. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And this particular passage, it was pointing towards a new covenant. And that new covenant was going to be between Jesus Christ, not only his people, but the entire world. And that was a salvation that we would experience through Jesus Christ. And so enter in Jesus Christ. We see in Hebrews chapter 8, 
verses 6 through, uh, 6 through 13, it's really explaining this new covenant, uh, really referring back to Jeremiah chapter 31, and there's some elements of Romans chapter 1 in it as well, and this is what it has to say in Romans chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, he's repeating now in this particular passage, Jeremiah chapter 31. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, we see this in Romans chapter 1, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to my people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins, and their iniquities, while I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant... He hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So by its nature, the Mosaic Covenant, the law, was primarily external. It showed how sinful man was in his inability to keep the law. That was the old covenant. The new covenant is eternal. That's Jesus Christ, the salvation that we experience through him. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So in summary, in all of this, God made a covenant with his people, the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The covenant was a set of laws known as the Mosaic Covenant. That was the laws that were given to the nation of Israel, also referred to as the Torah. Jesus Christ brought a new covenant, paying the penalty of the law through his death and resurrection and ushering in a new covenant based upon grace. But in Romans 6, Paul makes it clear that even though we are underneath grace, we don't just toss out God's commands. We have a great motivation to worship God that stems from the fact that every believer is a new person in Christ. And so again, the overall point that Paul is making here in the first six verses of Romans chapter 7 is really the change in a believer's relationship to the law. Because a believer is dead to the law through the finished work of Christ, the jurisdiction of the law has no power over the believer. Which brings us to our first point here this morning, and that is the law's power changes at death. Look down at verse, uh, verses 1 through 3. Look, let's, let's just stop at verse 1 for a second. He says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Once again, Paul poses this statement as a rhetorical question in order to force his listeners to really think about what he's speaking of here. And that is regarding the relationship that we have to the law. Through this question, Paul, in essence, tells the listeners that the law has no jurisdiction over a person that is dead. I mean, think about it from a logical standpoint. On September 11, 2001, we had a horrible attack, one of the worst attacks by a foreign invader on American soil in our lifetime in all of history. We had terrorists that hijacked airplanes, and they flew them into the World Trade Centers. Uh, they flew them into the Pentagon. One crashed in rural part of Pennsylvania. And then, uh, basically, they're they killing thousands and thousands of people. Now, obviously, the terrorists behind that, that were flying those planes, were underneath the subject of the law. They faced a severe penalty of the law. 
but they never served out those sentences because they were dead. That law then, that sentence of that law has no power over them because they were dead. So in explaining this, Paul continues on and he gives an example regarding marriage in verses 2 and 3. He says, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband, so as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no, not an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, we're not going to take time to speak about divorce and remarriage right now because of a couple of different reasons. Number one, I want to be able to see your face when we speak about such a sensitive topic. And number two, that's not Paul's point in these two verses. His point is not to talk about marriage itself as far as the divorce and remarriage and that kind of thing. Paul's really using this as an example by showing the binding agreement between a husband and wife within the realms of marriage as a way to explain to the believer's relationship to the law before Christ and after Christ. Before Christ, a person was underneath that penalty of the law. Once a person repents and receives Christ as their Savior, the relationship of the law that that person had is broken because now that person is in Christ. So through this graphic illustration here, Paul is really doing an excellent job in picturing the believer's relationship to the law before salvation. So imagine with me for a moment, you have a husband and wife, and that wife is really subject to a harsh relationship to that husband. That husband uh, verbally abuses her and, and, and goes through all these different things, and it's a horrible thing. We understand that really to only be released from that bondage, as Paul indicates here, is through death. Now, we understand that Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 both indicate that unfaithfulness breaks the marriage bond, but Paul does not bring this up here because, again, that is not his point in explaining this. What Paul is saying is that within the realms of marriage, underneath that marriage covenant, the husband passes away, and at that moment then, the woman is set free. The death of the husband makes void the woman's status of being his wife in the eyes of the law. The truth that Paul is driving home here through this analogy is the law's power ends at death. The law's power ends at death. But the example really leaves us with a few more questions. First off, at what point did the law die or did the law die to begin with? Oh, are those that are not followers of Christ still underneath the penalty of the law? If the law is dead to the believers, then why does Paul still seem to indicate that we have to obey the law? And the answers to these questions can really be answered in the final two points. Here's point number two. The believers died to the law. The believers died to the law. Look down at verse four. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. We died to the law, the moment we became followers of Christ. We see this back in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. If you flip back, this is what it says. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized unto Jesus, were baptized unto his death. Therefore we are buried with him 
by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. When we were unsaved, Paul uses the term in the flesh in verse 5, we were underneath the authority of God's law. Being under the authority of God's law, we were condemned by that law. But when we trusted in Christ, we were united in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we died in the flesh just as, and the law just as Christ died, as Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6 indicates. But the important thing to remember is that the law itself did not die. We, as being people underneath the penalty and condemnation of the law, die to it in the death of Christ. So what Paul does in verse 4 is he really string, uh, changes the structure of the analogy that he gives regarding marriage in verses 2 and 3. In Paul's marriage analogy, Paul places the believer as the wife and the law as the husband, therefore indicating that the law must die for us to be freed from the bondage of it. But in verse 4, Paul changes the structure saying that the believer is to be dead to the law, indicating that the law is still alive. And in doing so, Paul shows us that the marriage itself, that covenant that we have between us and the law, was killed through the body of Christ as really being this propitiation for us. So we died to the power of the law, but the law itself did not die. In verse 4, Paul says, you became dead to the law. The answer really answers our previous question. Believers died to the law the moment that they received Christ. They identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ so that in doing so they became dead to the law. Therefore, they no longer faced the penalty of the law. In addition, since the law is still alive, those that are not followers of Christ are still underneath the power and the penalty of the law. Since they cannot keep the law, the law reveals them, uh, really reveals the sin that's in their lives, which inevitably leads them to the penalty of the law, which is death and eternal separation from God. So Paul continues with this marriage analogy in verse 4 and says that you should be married to another, even to him who is dead or who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, before a person can be married to the law, they had a binding relationship to the law. Therefore, everything that the law presented in the relationship, the person had to abide by. And the only way that this marriage relationship to the law could be severed was through death. So as Paul beautifully illustrates back in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, when Christ died, his death severed mankind's relationship to the law for all those that become followers of Christ. When a man repents of his sin and believes upon Christ as his Savior, they identify now with the death and the resurrection of Christ, therefore making him dead to the marriage of the law. And here's the important thing, now alive to the marriage to Christ. Now to really fully understand all of this, we have to understand what marriage looked like in the Old and New Testament. There were three main periods of the marriage ceremony. You have the betrothal period, 
You have the presentation period, and you have the actual wedding ceremony in the Old Testament and New Testament times. The betrothal period is, was really more of a stronger engagement than what we experience today. From a legal standpoint, the man and the woman were looked at as being legally married. However, during the betrothal period, the woman still lived with her father and, and her family. And so the marriage itself between the man and the woman were not consummated, but they were looked at by the law as actually being married. And so any unfaithfulness that occurred would be as if they cheated on each other while they were married. The second part of it was really the presentation part of it. As we moved closer to the wedding ceremony, there was a presentation which followed many festivities. There was many colorful presentations of the, of the bride and the groom together with their families uniting. And then finally, you had the wedding ceremony itself. It was not, during, not until the wedding ceremony itself that the vows were exchanged and the wedding was, and the marriage was consummated. The Bible pictures us in this relationship with God as really being this marriage that we have, the church, the Bible refers to as, as the body of believers, being in this marriage relationship with Christ. But currently, right now here on earth, we are within the betrothal period. The Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, uh, it talks about wives submitting to their husbands, but it's using the analogy of the church in relationship to Jesus. This is what it says. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything." So if we are supposed to keep, or we are to keep, really within these three processions of the wedding and the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, we are currently within the betrothal period. We have a, the, the, our marriage to Christ hasn't been consummated yet. And for those of you that this is a new concept, it could be a little bit strange. I'm going to do the best that I can to, uh, to be able to explain this. But right now, we are legally married to Christ as followers of Christ. We are no longer married to the law and the penalty of the law. We are married to Christ. We have a new relationship. The presentation aspect, when Christ comes and, and, and gets his bride, occurs at the rapture. That occurs when Christ comes and he raptures his church. That is the presentation part of the marriage. So those that are dead in Christ will rise first. First Thessalonians talks about that. And those that are alive in Christ will be caught up with the Lord in the air. But it's not until the marriage supper of the Lamb does our marriage to Christ, the bride of the church, are they actually united with their Christ and, and, and their wedding consummated? The Revelation chapter 9 verse 7 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. So to give you an overview of where we are right now, during this particular time period, and it will continue until the rapture, we are underneath this betrothal period. So anyone that repents of their sin and accepts Christ as their Savior, their marriage relationship to the law was severed because they died with Christ in his resurrection, and now they are married, they are betrothed to Christ. Their full, complete uh, um, consummation of that marriage has not been reached yet. During the rapture, the presentation ceremony aspect of the overall wedding will take place, and then during the marriage supper of the Lamb, which occurs after all of that, that is when our marriage will be consummated with Christ. So then the question is, what does all of this mean for us as Christians now? Going back to the question here that we posed just a few moments ago, if the law is dead to the believers, then why does Paul still seem to indicate that we must obey it? And in order to answer this, let's continue to think about this betrothal period here in light of our marriage to Christ. As I mentioned before, we are in this betrothal period. Our marriage has not been consummated, therefore we are legally married to Christ. 
And, and just like it was in the Old and New Testament times, the law, the government looks at that as being a legal marriage. And so any unfaithfulness within the realms of marriage would be looked at as, as, as really committing adultery to two married people. We are dead to the relationship of the law because we now have a new marriage. Even though the marriage ceremony has not been consummated, we must still remain faithful. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have a spouse to you, one husband, that I may present to you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Within this context, Paul is speaking directly to the church in Corinth, understanding that this marriage relationship between the church and Christ, Paul wanted the church to be pure until the marriage day finally arrived. Pure, but pure from what? Pure from false teachers, false doctrine, pure from sin, pure from anything that identifies or builds a relationship outside of Christ, which is sin. So then why do we keep God's moral law as Christians? Because we do it out of a love for our new spouse, which is Christ, and to keep ourselves pure from the one that rescued us from the power and the penalty of the law. Going back to Romans chapter four or 7, verses 4 through 5, Paul states this, Wherefore, my brethren... Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. It is a new relationship that brings new freedom and results in a new loyalty, which really brings us, this, this, this loyalty here in verse 6 really brings us to our final point here this morning, and that's this. Number three, believers are delivered from the law. The Bible says in verse 6, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were healed, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Once again, Paul emphasizes the fact that the law cannot exercise authority over a dead person. When Paul says deliver from the law, this is not a freedom to live life, to do whatever God's law forbids. It would violate what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and verse 15. This speaks to a freedom from the spiritual liabilities and the penalties of God's law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Once again, Paul emphasizes that because we died with Christ, when we received him as our Savior, the condemnation and the penalties of the law no longer have any kind of jurisdiction over us. Paul continues in verse 6 by stating we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When Paul uses the word serve, it really parallels slaves that he uses back in Romans chapter 6, specifically in verse 18. In other words, Paul says that not only will the believer be able to do what is right, he will do what is right because he will be righteous in the eyes of God. This emphasizes a service that is not voluntary. We will have a desire as Christians to please God because of the Holy Spirit that resides within us. Paul continues with that statement and he mentions in the newness of spirit which indicates a new state of mind in which the Holy Spirit produces a new desire and ability to keep the law. Once again, this speaks of this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit energizes us as we seek to obey and serve the Lord. Under the law, there was no enablement given because the Holy Spirit did not empower us. But under grace... We walk in this newness of life and serve in the newness of the Spirit as believers because we are no longer underneath this authority of the law. This morning, we can praise God for the freedom that we have through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
It is only through his son that we indeed have this freedom. But being in this new relationship with Christ, we are now married to him. And that requires our faithfulness. Now, faithfulness and good works is not a requirement for salvation. But James tells us that a person that is genuinely saved will produce fruit that matches with his true heart uh, loyalty. And so a person that is a follower of Christ will produce fruit that matches up with that. But my prayer is that this morning, as Christians, that we would be reminded of our relationship that we have with Christ. Not only, as we saw in Romans chapter 6, do we, do we have the power over sin because of the power of Christ, but now we have this new life. And so going back to uh, what I mentioned earlier about the illustration with somebody in our church texting this person about Christianity, and his response was, I, I am having such a hard time understanding the rigid rules of Christianity. That doesn't seem like freedom. When we fully understand what we have been saved from and the relationship that we now have in Christ, we will never look at it as being a set of rules. We will look at it as being this loving relationship that we have with Christ in which we want to make our future uh, uh, spouse one in which we will spend the rest of our lives with in eternity serving and glorifying, one that has sacrificed his life, given his life so that we could be free, making him happy and giving him glory. So as we close out here this morning, I never want to let a week go by where we do not give an opportunity for those that are listening to have a relationship with Christ. You've, mentioned, you've heard me mention many times about the gospel. What is the gospel? It means the good news. Because there's good news, there means that there had to have been bad news. And the bad news is this. Every single person, the Bible says in Romans, we are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And so every single person that's ever been born is a sinner. That is what they are. That is a fact. And because they are sinners, myself included, we do not have a relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do in our own strength and power to reestablish that relationship with God. We can't please him. We cannot make him happy. We cannot give him praise. We can go to church. We can do things that look spiritual. But if, unless our spirit has been revived and renewed, there is no connection between us and God. But God, seeing that we have this tremendous need, moved with compassion. As I mentioned earlier, this new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. He sent his only son to earth to live a perfect and sinless life. A man that never knew sin, the Bible says, became sin for us. And he went to the cross and he died for us in our place so all those that call upon him can have this freedom through the righteousness of Christ. And so my question for you here this morning is perhaps you are searching. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you repented? Repenting is to turning away from, as we looked at last week, it is having a, a different mindset regarding your sin, regarding Christ, turning away from that and calling upon Christ as your Savior. How, do, how does one receive the gospel? Well, as God works in your heart, you repent. You realize your need for a Savior. You realize that because of your sin, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God. And you realize and trust the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one that can lead us to our eternal relationship with the Father. And so you call upon Christ as your Savior. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You realize that you're a sinner. You call upon Christ to save you. 
you give your heart and your life to Christ, the Bible says that if you do that, and you believe and, and you're calling upon Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. And it's at that moment that you die to the law. You're no longer underneath the power and the penalty of the law, which basically leads to death and eternal separation from God. Now you are a new creature in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, giving you the power and the ability to become more like Christ. That only happens through Jesus Christ. So my prayer, my invitation for you this morning is that if you've never done that, invite Christ into your life. 